You're listening to The Multiplier Effect, an Endeavor podcast. We run a rules-based co-investment fund that doesn't compete with other venture capital funds, but basically tells every Endeavor entrepreneur, hey, if and when you go raise money, we'll give you mentorship and support and advice. We'll help make introductions and influence other funds and, and really try to help other funds see that they can invest in these places where Endeavor is working. Welcome everyone to a new season of The Multiplier Effect. This season, we're continuing our investor series from season one, but this time with a focus on the theme of investing in a recession. Each week, you'll hear from thought leaders throughout the Endeavor network about relevant topics related to investing and navigating a business during an economic downturn. My name is Janem Arkan. I'm the managing director of Endeavor Heartland. And today I'm joined by our very special guest and someone that I've known for a long time and have seen the incredible work he's done, Alan Taylor, managing partner of Endeavor Catalyst. Okay. So Alan, tell us a little bit about your background, how you got involved with Endeavor all those years ago, and what does it mean to be the managing partner of Endeavor Catalyst? Sure. Well, first off, Jim, uh, nice to see you. And thanks for having me. Uh, always love to do stuff like this. Uh, for the audience listening, I joined Endeavor actually back in 2006. Uh, so that is a long time ago. Uh, I've worked here a little over 16 years. Um, but I never thought I would work here for 16 years, right? It's been an amazing story and journey uh, to really grow and scale my own career as Endeavor has has grown and scaled. So, you know, by way of background, I grew up in Northern California, uh, very close to Silicon Valley. I guess I always sort of valued the the DNA of of innovation and the things that happened around the the Bay Area. Uh, but in college, I ended up living uh, and and studying in Argentina. And when I was 19, 20 years old, that experience had a big impact on my life. So after college, I started a postgraduate fellowship program uh, related to Latin America. I spent another year and a half living and working in Latin America. Uh, all to say this idea that there was talent kind of everywhere in the world became a big part of my thesis kind of for life. And so I was really lucky to find Endeavor uh, and join the team in 2006 with the idea that, hey, if, if we can support entrepreneurs in all these other places, right? Initially, it was all emerging market countries, but you know, today's expanded to be all these other underserved or emerging regions, uh, even within the U.S., uh, that you know the talent is out there, right? It's just about kind of surrounding them with with the right uh, the right people. So that's ended up you know kind of guiding my my whole career. Um, we'll, we can kind of talk through the different steps if you want, but uh, you know initially I joined Endeavor to work on the selection team. That was kind of how to find the best founders and entrepreneurs. Uh, over time, I, I worked on the servicing team of, of how to support them. I led that team, and then in 2012, uh, I was part of a small group that actually put together. Endeavor's very first uh, venture capital fund, uh, Endeavor Catalyst. And so we've been doing that work now for a little over a decade, uh, and we can talk about it. But it, it's been an amazing evolution because for the first 15 years Endeavor existed, we didn't actually invest in the companies. Uh, and then ultimately, we kind of put our money where our mouth is, right, and then started investing in the businesses uh, about 10 years ago. Okay, so I want to touch on that decision because I think it's really important to the next part of what we want to talk about, which is why didn't you invest in companies and how did you make the leap to decide investing in companies knowing Endeavor's mission of being you know, founder first and focused on helping companies scale to have this big economic impact? So how did you come to the decision to invest in those companies? 
Yeah, I guess starting with why we didn't do it originally, right, is Endeavor is a very unique entity, right? This kind of mission-driven nonprofit model of like, hey, the best way to actually create jobs and, and create economic prosperity is by helping entrepreneurs uh, and creating kind of this network of trust, right? This network of mentors and partners and, and peers, right? And other founders, I think, was so important to the work Endeavor did over that first 10 or 15 years. Um, we got to the point where people really did trust us, right? And they knew what Endeavor was. They knew what we stood for. Uh, and so when we said, hey, we're going to consider starting a fund, you know, we weren't becoming a venture capital fund. I say today, like, you know, we are not a fund. We have a fund, right? Which I think is a really critical difference is we are still that of, by, and for entrepreneurs kind of network of trust first. Um, but what we learned over time is that it's really important. This is good advice actually for founders is always make sure to kind of question uh, your own assumptions, right? And we had assumed for a long time at Endeavor that there was no way we could start a fund. Uh, and it was when Reed Hoffman, actually, the co-founder of LinkedIn, joined the board of Endeavor, of the nonprofit, that he challenged us and said, well, why is that true, right? And we said, well, you know, you can imagine that all these people are part of our network and we can't pick and choose. And he said, well, what if you made it a rules-based fund? And we said, oh, that, that's interesting. We hadn't thought of that, right? And so this is how we ended up with today, a very unique entity, which is we run a rules-based co-investment fund that doesn't compete with other venture capital funds, but basically tells every Endeavor entrepreneur, hey, if and when you go raise money, we'll give you mentorship and support and advice. We'll help make introductions and influence other funds and, and really try to help other funds see that they can invest in these places where Endeavor is working. Uh, and then we'll chip in a couple million dollars of our own, right? And that's what we do. We invest kind of 5% of a round up to a few million dollars in a series A, B, or C round. You know, we've now done that uh, more than 250 times over the last decade, right? So it, it's clearly a model that's working really well, but it's one, you know, we had to really be brave and, and bold and questioning our own assumptions of why, why can't we have a fund, right? And that was an important decision uh, for Endeavor back in 2011, 2012. And I think you you hit on these a couple a couple of times of why this Endeavor Fund is so unique. But and this isn't on the, on the questions we reviewed, so I'm going to take you a little bit by surprise here. But what is the most right. similar? You know, who's your competitor in this? When you think about the fund that Endeavor does, is there anything out there that is remotely similar to what we do at Endeavor and what Catalyst does in terms of investing? So you can come up with. A couple, I'll talk about the landscape. There are some other folks out there who have elements of what we do. Um, nobody does exactly what we do with exactly this model. Although the the general generic spirit of if you're an existing organization with an amazing kind of community of people who've been selected in for some particular reason, and then you have a unique relationship with them where you help them and they trust you, starting a co-invest fund where you could commit to kind of invest in all of them is actually a powerful idea that other organizations have now with our encouragement, right? Copied from us. And we said, Hey, do this, right? Just check it out. Um, the, that part, the original idea actually comes from Stanford university because Stanford has a fund, uh, called Stardex that essentially will invest in anything connected to the university, right? The idea is venture capital is an access game. They get access because these people went to Stanford or teach at Stanford or have some relationship with the university. Um, we've now helped and encouraged other universities in Brazil and other places to look at this. Uh, we helped the Unreasonable Institute, the guys out of Colorado, who have a similar kind of founder support program to look at doing a, a rules-based fund like this. So that piece of it, I think, is a really interesting powerful part of the model. Um, 
But because Endeavor today is more than 500 employees on the ground in more than 40 countries, you know, with this huge kind of uh, team and, and network of resources supporting the nonprofit and the mission, it allows us to run a strategy as a fund that would be very difficult for any other fund to run in exactly the same way. Um, so you can say like on the very early stage, you know, some of the uh, early stage funds like like 500 startups uh, or accelerator programs like Y Combinator, right, are all becoming more global in nature, which we think is a super, super good thing, right, that they're investing all over the world. Uh, and at the very later stages, you know, you can take a take a growth equity fund like a General Atlantic, right? They have offices all around the world and, and give you a similar kind of geo diversity. Um, but Endeavor really does, you know, as a fund, Endeavor Catalyst invests in series A, B, and C. And routinely, we are sort of the most global in our breadth in what we're doing at those stages of investing, right? Because most of the traditional venture capital funds all kind of started in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, they do some work in Europe. They've all kind of, they had a China fund. They've had an India fund. They're starting to look at Southeast Asia. But, you know, Endeavor is sort of in all these different places at once. I, I describe this and I'd be curious to hear your take on it. I sort of describe Endeavor as the uh, mirror image of a venture fund, meaning I think of venture funds as they latch onto a great idea, invest and then spend if they're doing things the right way, in my opinion, a lot of time and resources to help that company scale. And I think we do that up front and then we invest in the company because we've taken so much time, effort and you know steps to sort of help them scale at that point. So that's I think of it as a little bit of the venture model flipped on its head. So I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the joke always was that, you know, way back in the day, venture, like most financial investment classes, was really just an investment uh, asset class, right? And over time, you've seen over the decades, kind of uh, all these value-added services get built by venture capital funds because they want to be able to help founders. So they become more founder-friendly in their orientation, but they've also layered in you know, pioneered in the last couple of decades by Andreessen Horowitz and others building like big teams of people to help entrepreneurs. The almost kind of funny part for us at Endeavor is all the brochures now for venture funds say like, we do all these things to help founders. That's what we did originally. Like that's all we did, right? Even yeah. for 15 years before we invested, all we did was help founders, right? And and now we also invest, um, but it is a little bit flipped. Your your description is is accurate. So, okay, so we've talked about Endeavor being unique, especially Endeavor Catalyst in sort of its mission and how it operates and its global nature. Um, let's talk about that in a downturn, right? We've had this sort of unprecedented market for the last, you know, since Endeavor has been investing literally, um, which is not to say there haven't been moments and countries that have ex experienced some exogenous shock or some market risks. But now you're thinking about this on a, on a global level. We are potentially entering certainly in the United States, but I, again, really do think globally, a recession. So how do you think about the role of Endeavor Catalyst and, and then maybe as a corollary, just given what you're seeing all around the world, venture funds in general, uh, what, what should their role be in a downturn and how should they be thinking about supporting companies and investing in companies? Look, I think at the end of the day, uh, Endeavor is founded upon, you know, sometimes I describe this as the remarkable individual theory of societal change, right? Like really, really special entrepreneurs and really special founders. And largely, if you look at the data over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, the very best founders get funded in all markets, right? And so in some ways, and this is going to sound like a little bit of a strange answer, our core business as Endeavor of partnering with the best entrepreneurs or our core business as Endeavor Catalyst of investing in the very best companies 
it doesn't change <laughs> like as markets go up and down like it's actually very very similar um what changes a lot is how many other companies in the ecosystem are getting funded and how hard or easy it is to raise capital kind of for the top decile the top quartile the top half of companies and founders out there right because for the top one or two percent it, it, they just are going to get funded in all these environments, right? And, and that's, so we're still investing, right? Even as the world is falling apart or people are saying, oh, there's going to be no capital. Like we're still making investments in phenomenal companies. Um, but in Endeavor's larger role on kind of helping to build these ecosystems, we recognize that more companies in 2023 and 2024 are going to fail or are going to run out of money or are going to have a harder time raising money than happened in 20 and 20 and 2021, right? In kind of a very different economic environment. So, you know, our larger kind of access to capital team at Endeavor, which includes the fund, but is all the mentoring support and everything has been thinking a lot about like, well, what do we do for the, not the one or two very best entrepreneurs, but also for the top, you know, 10, the top 50, the top hundred in an ecosystem, try to help make sure, you know, they have viable paths to keeping their business, you know, thriving uh, to get to the other side. I think in general, um, you know, all these things are sort of cyclical. So I don't think we're on some sort of downhill forever. Like they do go up and down. Um, and we've spent a lot of time with entrepreneurs on, you know, nobody has a crystal ball. So you don't know exactly where is the bottom or how do you manage all this? So you have to do kind of scenario planning and manage risk within your own company. You know, in the, in the boom times, you're doing the show me the base case, show me the upside, show me the extreme upside. In these days in board meetings and things we're doing, okay, show me the base case, show me the downside show me the extreme downside, right? Like kind of a scenario plan for sort of survival of companies that you know in a different environment may thrive again. Do you feel like there is an unfair advantage to win for being a company in an underserved market? So when you think about where Endeavor operates all over Latin America, Middle East, Southeast Asia, you know, parts of Europe, Northern Africa, Southern Africa, and then sort of this unserved market in the United States. Like, do you think that companies there are actually somewhat positioned better to survive? Because they've always done more with less in some ways, right? Yeah. I mean, I have a bias here, right? Since I've spent my whole career working with founders and investing in these markets. But I think culturally, from a mentality perspective, uh, founders from these places are better equipped to to have perseverance, to survive adversity, you know, to all these all these different factors. Whereas if you only knew going to Stanford and building a company in Palo Alto, right? All of a sudden you're like, well, wait a second, what's happening? <laughs> it's a much more difficult environment. So yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a natural, um, natural advantage there. Are you seeing any trends? Uh, obviously you've spent a lot of time looking at this. So are you seeing trends globally that are interesting for listeners? Is it harder in one part of the world versus another? Are certain industries getting more difficult because people know that, you know, direct to consumer businesses have a tougher time in a downturn than B2B businesses, for example. So what are some overarching trends you've seen through the catalyst lens? Yeah, so Catalyst is unique, I guess, to share with the audience in that because we look across the whole world and we're looking across all these different industries, um, we end up with a pretty cool dashboard <laughs> kind of data set of what's happening out there. And then particularly because we're a co-investment fund, we are not driving that data, right? So we're not saying, hey, we want to do more fintech this quarter or we want to do more in Asia. We're just holding a mirror up to the market of what's happening in Endeavor's portfolio. Uh, and therefore, we can see, you know, after the market really started to slow down and there were much fewer financings essentially starting on april may of last year right you could see it slowing in north america and latin america and europe uh it stayed very strong in parts of southeast asia 
you know, in Indonesia, uh, it stayed very strong in the kind of greater Middle East, especially Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Dubai, Egypt. We saw those markets kind of continuing in the second half of last year um, in a way that the rest of the world had already slowed. Now, they're also slowing. So you kind of see the different impacts, you know, geographically. Um, but I think probably more relevant to an audience of listeners and Janem and kind of your uh, regions are the business model trends that we see, right? Which is, this is no secret, but the idea of if you're going to build within an area that requires a ton of financing to really scale unprofitably for a very long time, those businesses are going to be very hard to build in this environment. And people were building them actually and kicking them off and starting new ones in 2020 and 2021 that that just doesn't make sense anymore. So, you know, the idea of existing businesses having to uh, prioritize profitability, you know, change their growth plans, change how they were investing, that's all true. But in terms of new company creation and new company formation, you know, you're going to see a, a different subset of companies being created that have to price in the cost of capital, right? Which is that you don't have this just kind of very, very inexpensive capital, uh, both on the equity and debt side, kind of flowing into, into new businesses. Talk to me a little bit about valuations. And again, sort of you have this big global picture and I know there's going to be vari variances around the world and around industry, but have you seen valuations flatten, level out? You know, are, are there real big differences versus verticals? Yeah. So I guess without going crazy inside baseball venture capital jargon, yeah. right, the, the most basic premise is uh, the values of companies and how markets value companies obviously goes up and down. Um, you know, we had a retreat uh, with a bunch of our own founders, many of whom now run public companies, uh, where they were talking with the ones who still run private companies about like, yeah, as when you become a public company CEO, you get very used to the idea that like, oh, your stock goes up and down every day, or it goes up and down every quarter, or it moves around, right? And what is a little bit of a challenge for private markets is there's a culture right now of if you're a growing, uh, let's say, you know, series A, B, C stage startup, that your valuation only ever goes one direction, right? That it only right. goes up, yeah, which is like kind of a weird prices. We need that too. <laughs> right? Because yeah. your company may be going in that direction, um, but there's all these other factors in how the market is valuing the company, right? And so, because one of the biggest inputs here is what happens in public markets when the public market comps have corrected tremendously, uh, that's going to have an impact. And we've seen that for sure on the companies that are later stage, right? So say the ones that are one to three years away from potentially being public companies, the public market correction has a big impact on the valuations in that segment of the private market. Where it has the least impact is on call it pre-seed or seed type financing because investors know and founders know that those companies are, you know, six, eight, 10 years away from having to like do an IPO and have the public markets value the business, right? And we and we believe fundamentally that the public market is also cyclical and it'll go back up over time. So, you know, I think one of the things we're working on as Endeavor is trying to normalize or destigmatize the concept of a down round for successful entrepreneurs and founders or a flat round, because it turns out that's not actually a, a sign of failure or weakness. Um, it's actually the the correct thing to do is to revalue the company in line with current market conditions. And you'll even see some of the more bold founders and CEOs proactively doing this, right? We've had a couple in the portfolio do this. They don't even need new capital. They haven't raised new rounds, but they proactively reset their internal valuation 
largely to help with employee stock option plans and kind of employee recruitment and all those sorts of issues because you want people to come into the company at the right strike price that's the current fair price of the company in the market right but i will say without getting too far down into the weeds there are lots of incentives in the venture industry for people to not change the value of the company yeah. Um, right. Current investors don't necessarily want the markdown. Founders don't want the markdown. Employees don't want the markdown. And while that's all on paper, you know, you will see a lot of companies continue to carry their kind of peak 2021 value with a lot of this kind of wink, wink, like, well, we know that's not really the value anymore, but that's the carrying value on paper. Right. And I think we'd do better as an industry if we could just encourage like, hey, look, you're still running a great business. Let's go raise some more capital, but let's do it at a fair price, right? And I think we'll we'll see more founders do that in 2023 who are in that kind of series A to B or B to C stage where, you know, they will go out and raise capital. It will be a, a lower price than at the, you know, whatever their January 2022 or November 2021 price was, right? Because the world is just in a very different place. Um, but it is case by case and company by company. And, you know, we're trying to help all the Endeavor entrepreneurs with exactly those questions. I love how you phrase that. And I, I grew up around the public markets, so there is absolutely no stigma for your stock price going up or down. And certainly, in fact, you expect it with certain events, certain right. uh, macro data, you know, anything exogenous that happens in a geopolitical world, including, you know, a hardships, battle, war, supply chain issues. And yet you're so right that we never expect private companies to go down in that same cycle. And when it happens, there's a lot of, you know, hand wringing. So I love that idea. I actually haven't hadn't thought about it in that way. So thanks for, thanks for reframing that. For it me. came to life. It came to life for me in those kind of peer circles where we're having like 10 person conversations where five of the Endeavor entrepreneurs were CEOs of public companies and five were private. And I was like, oh my gosh, why haven't we, why haven't we thought about this yeah. in this way before? Part of it is if you zoom out, a lot of people have been saying, well, what happened in 2009 or what happened in 2001 and two in the public markets, you can take a lot of lessons from those previous eras in the private markets, it's harder to do that because, frankly, the entire size of the venture capital and kind of growth equity industry has grown, you know, depending on exactly which data set you're using, 30, 40, 50 times bigger in the last few decades, right? Yeah. And so there were no pod, I, I think there were very few podcasts about venture capital 20 years ago, right? And so this is a bigger industry than it used to be. And I think that uh, it's worth acknowledging. That is. And I think that yeah, just the podcast, if the podcast is a proxy for the number of venture funds, then yes, it's certainly grown a lot. Um, let's talk about one more thing as it relates to our founders. And then we're going to move on to a little bit of a different segment. But sure. venture capitalists is sort of it's well known that they have a lot of inbounds and they have to think about picking and choosing their meetings and how to sort of take a company to the next level or stage of their um, process. And so in this market, I think it's especially important for founders to really stand out because I think more people will be requiring capital than perhaps they expected to because of all these things we just spoke about. So how does a founder get the attention of an investor at Endeavor because we have this amazing process, right? So your local managing director and team will know a lot about you and be able to put you in front of the Allen and our Catalyst team. But how do they do that in a broader sense? So how does a founder get attention in a downturn if their numbers aren't as great, if they need capital, but they know they have this amazing growth plan ahead of them. Yeah. So I think, first of all, we talk a lot about this within our capital support programs, but fundamentally raising capital is not about the capital 
or it's only partly about the capital, right? <laughs> Essentially the, the money, because the money is the commodity, right? The and, and you can think of different ways to finance a business through debt, through, you know, different pricing to finance through your own customers, right? Like you don't always have to use equity to, to grow a company. Nor should you, right? Not only Nor should companies. you. Should you, Correct. yeah. Well, and that's always in the kind of decision tree. That's always part one is like, is this a business that should be venture backed and venture right. financed or not, right? Because there's lots of very, very good businesses even ones that can really scale that frankly don't need outside kind of equity capital. Um, but for the ones that do want to grow in that way, um, I believe it's fundamentally all about partnership uh, and it's about the people and the resources and the skills that you can bring into the company uh, almost more so than the, than the money itself. Right. And this is the idea that if you get the right partners at the right stages of the company, and again, endeavors in this position of wanting to be one of these partners, uh, it can have a, a profound impact on the rate of growth, right? How fast you can do this and the ultimate magnitude of success of kind of how big it can be. And for the most ambitious founders that want to build the biggest companies and kind of really scale in this way, you know, I think venture capital has become a fantastic tool in that there are more and more options out there, right? It's not like, oh, you have to fly to Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley and pitch these 15 firms, Right. Like today, there are thousands of different firms out there. But I think what's fascinating to me is there's still, I think, a real asymmetry in how much diligence gets done, where investors do lots of diligence on the founders, but founders don't do as much diligence, I think, as they could or should on the investors. Right. Yeah. And so, step one, when we sit with any founder, is to make an investor map, right? And sort of say, hey, who are the people you admire in your industry? who are investing capital, whether it's as angel investors or within smaller funds or within bigger funds, right? That you think a conversation with them would be really helpful to you or a long-term partnership with them would be really helpful to your company, right? And so making that map of who those people are and then honestly mapping any possible connection you have, right? Two, three, four, five different connections to them. Uh, because ultimately I think this is a relationship building business. It's a people business. And again, ideally, in the best scenario, you're connecting with investors and you're building relationships in moments when you're not actively asking for capital, right? If if you can do it, right? That's the best way to to really do it. Um, now, in terms of how to how to break through the noise in this idea that they get thousands of inbounds, you'll hear different philosophies on this. There's some venture firms set up now that say, "Hey, just email us on our website. Like we respond to everything." I don't think that's particularly realistic. Uh, my view is warm introductions still really help because they are curation filters and they are proxies for trust. Uh, and the very, very best introduction you can get to any venture fund is from a founder entrepreneur who's been backed by that venture fund before. That's number one. The next best is from a uh, curated accelerator program network, You know, something like Endeavor, we're in that category. Um, the third best is just a random social connection, right? You figure out that your neighbor's uh, wife was college roommates with this guy at this fund and you like find a way in like that works, right? That's random, but the venture funds, frankly, don't know how to score that can't score that really, uh, in terms of a lead. And so they tend to take them. Um, and then the fourth is more what I'll call like a paid intro, which is working with a bank or an advisor. And frankly, I think that's really a business for later stage fundraising. Cause I think earlier stage is all about kind of human connection. Yeah. Well, I think that's invaluable advice at this moment in time. And I think the idea of making those connections before you need them is so important. And I think that's what we do in Endeavor. So I love that. Um, I love that we can be a part of that solution, if only just one.
But um, yeah, and I think honestly, um, helping founders calibrate their own expectation management of like, hey, I'm going to be out of money in 15 days. I got to go raise capital. That doesn't work. You that know, it's a, it's a it's a long term <laughs> thing. So if you're going to be out of money in 15 days. Yes, let's figure out something else to do, right? But there needs to be something other than an equity financing to to make that happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so with that, let's go to a couple of different segments that we do. One is the call me crazy moment. The founder of Endeavor, Linda Rotenberg, has always said, call me crazy. Crazy is a compliment. So we like to ask each guest on this show, what has been your call me crazy moment? Uh, I guess I was reflecting on this you know, that uh, since I work at Endeavor, I embody call me crazy all the time. But yes. probably the time I got called crazy the most is when we set up this fund, because I'd already been working at Endeavor for six or seven years. And I had lots of people say to me, yeah, okay, this is a great thing for you to do in terms of the mission. But now you're going to invest real money in all these companies. And I said, well, yeah, but they're in emerging markets. Well, yeah, like we believe in this, right? And I really did. People say, well, there's no exits and how will it work? And it'll never work, right? And so it's been very satisfying 10 years in, you know, that first fund we raised, which was small, um, but that first kind of $10 million pool of capital, right? It has over an 8x cash on cash return from the investments that we made, right? And so that puts it among the top, I don't know, 5%, 2% of like all the best performing venture funds uh, from that time. And so it really worked, right? But people thought thought we were totally crazy uh, when we were really setting it up. So just just so for our listeners to know, so you started that with that I think six or eight, right, ten million that first sort of fund, if you will, and then mm-hmm. talk to us about where you are today. So what's the two hundred and ninety two, right, six to that? So it's grown a lot. Uh, that beta fund was about ten million dollars. Um, all in, we ended up raising about thirty million for what we think of as fund one. That's the first three or four years of investing. Uh, we went out to raise fifty for our second fund. It ended up raising eighty. So fund two was eighty million. Uh, we then went out to raise 100 for the next fund, and we raised 134. So that was fund three. And then we just set out to raise 200 for this last fund, and we raised 292. So each time, there's been more interest in doing this with us than than our goal. But all in now, it's it's over $500 million, right? Designated just to invest in Endeavor companies, you know, Endeavor entrepreneurs, uh, and really only in these emerging ecosystems around the world. Yeah. So now you think about it, you would have been crazy not to do it. So totally. No. And in some ways like, oh, Endeavor wouldn't even be here if we hadn't done this. Right. So I do think over time, you know, this is we think about this with our founders, but I think about it for us. Right. Like the, the thing you really are trying to improve over decades, right, is the quality of your decision making, because there's a few of these really big decisions that really matter. Right. And, and it's hard to know which ones they are. But in hindsight, that was a super important decision to actually start the fund even though, you know, lots of people were unsure. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to this part, but, you know, it's it's eventually going to be the key for the long-term sustainability of our nonprofit, right? Is that the, fu- the proceeds of the fund all flow back to fund Endeavor. And that's also going to be a really important decision for, for our long-term self-sustainability. Okay, so this next segment is our uh, rapid fire question. So just think first thing that pops into your head and you've seen some of these, so I may trick you and add add a couple more, but um, name, right, a company, <laughs> name a company and a founder that inspires you and it can be in the Never Network, obviously, or outside. Uh, one of the people I continue to be inspired by, and it's incredible given how long he's been on this journey building is Marcos Galperin, who's the co-founder and CEO of Mercado Libre. Uh, they started the company over 25 years ago. Uh, this is an Amazon, eBay type model for Latin America. 
But remarkably, you know, they took the company public in 2007 on the NASDAQ. Uh, people thought he was crazy for doing that, right, with his partners. Um, but today, it's, it, it has a market cap of, you know, $50, 60000000000 billion. This is a company only working in and serving Latin America. I, I continue to be inspired by kind of Marcos's vision and kind of long-term leadership, right? He does this kind of thinking in decades thing that I that I really uh, approve of. Well, and the fact that uh, as a as a CEO running a public company that big and how much time he gives to organizations like Endeavor, right? That's always, I'm always inspired by people who manage their time in that way uh, and continue to give back, which I think Marcos does, right? Yeah, I have no idea how he does it. But yes, the, the, <laughs> the most successful, amazing CEOs seem to also be the ones in Endeavor who, who do the most to give back. And you're like, I don't know how we do this. We, we joke that we have a cloning program, but we don't actually have one. So sign me up. I would like to be part of that program. So would, my kids would like that, too. Um, what are you reading or listening to right now that you're really enjoying? Well, so I did nerd, nerdy venture capital related. I did just finish reading The Power Law by Sebastian Malaby, which if you haven't read it, awesome book on kind of the history of venture capital. Uh, it goes really, really deep on a bunch of, you know, characters I know and interact with. And it's been very fun to kind of see the people in that book. Uh, and he's a great writer. Uh, I'm currently reading a book I received as a gift uh, called Side Country. Uh, the author is John Branch, but it delves deep into kind of uh, extreme sports and extreme pursuits. Uh, the subtitle is actually something like, you know, tales of death and life from the back roads of sports. And, uh, I've, I'm only halfway through, but I've, I've liked it a lot so far. Um, and I and do, I do listen and listening. I do listen to a lot of podcasts, mostly professional, um, you know, but I listen to the enthusiast that's Pat Alex, who's one of our teammates at Endeavor. I listen to Reed Hoffman's masters of scale, uh, invest like the best, uh, the, the, the crazy guys on all in, like I, I, I listened a lot, you know, while I'm driving and doing things. Um, that's one of my formats for digesting what's happening. Um, what's some of the best advice you have received? Uh, we say we ask for business, but honestly, I think it could be life advice too. So this one I got from Jason green, who's a founding partner at emergence capital and, uh, has been on the board of Endeavor for two decades. He's also is on the board of Coffin Fellows, recruited me to, to join that board um, a couple of years ago with him. And he's been kind of a you know personal mentor of mine for a long time. But he he shared this quote that I think might originally be from Bill Gates, or I'm not sure, but I, I got it from Jason. Um, but it is this idea that, you know, human beings are, are we're actually, um, uh, we really tend to drastically overestimate what we're going to do in one year. Um, but it turns out we actually really underestimate what we can do in one decade. And, you know, the the kind of advice that comes from that quote is then, you know, think in decades, right? If you can, right? Like kind of think as long-term as possible. turns out that's a tremendous competitive advantage in business. But I also think it's an, it's an amazing thing in life. Like if you can really take it seriously um, and try to apply it. And honestly, for most of us who grow up in a, you know, kind of achievement culture, university type setting, like we think in semesters or quarters for so much of our life, but then trying to stretch that out and think in a few years at a time or think a decade at a time. Uh, but it's awesome. Like the compounding effects of kind of where you put your time, energy and effort or the compounding effects of human capital, I think are just as powerful as kind of compounding in the financial markets. And it's really under recognized. 
It's funny you say that quote because I've heard you talk about that. So I now quote you as having said that. And then I make the <laughs> reference that you borrowed it from somebody else. But I think it's so valuable because it's, it is very easy to get bogged down in your, certainly as, as you mentioned, it's for people who are goal-driven when you fail to say like, oh man, I really want to get this done in Q1 and I, we, we couldn't do it. And so then reflecting back on the last five years and how much we've been able to get done is, is so powerful. And so maybe with that, your last question on this segment, and then we'll go on to one last thing is um, what do you want to get done in the next decade? So when you look at Alan in 2033, you know, give me a couple of key achievements you, you want to have done and we won't hold you to them. I won't come back to you in 10 years and say, did you get this done? Well, we should, that would be even more fun. Yeah, that's right? true. Well, if we, yes, we'll have you on the show and the podcast, hopefully before then, but yes. I mean, Jenna, we've been lucky enough to know each other for over a decade. So yeah. I hope we'll do this for at least a few more. Yeah. Um, it's funny when you ask me that question, uh, I have a three and a half year old daughter. And so the first thing that comes to my mind is like, well, next 10 years, like I gotta, I gotta really make sure we help her become an amazing human, right? She's already an amazing human, but I think, you know, being a, a relatively new dad, that's certainly a big priority for me. If I think about the, the next decade, um, and work related, I really want to help Endeavor reach its full potential. That's like kind of one of the ways I think about it these days. You know, people are like, what are you still doing there after 16 years? Right. And it's this idea of for a while, the drumbeat was let's make the model self-sustaining, right? That's the idea of starting Catalyst. And, you know, I think we really are well on our way to doing that. So the new thing for me of where to kind of shift my attention and focus in the next decade is how do we really scale endeavor to to reach its full potential right which probably means being in a lot more places maybe running programs that touch different types of founders maybe founders at earlier stages um but you know nothing changes around kind of the thesis or the theory of change but it's kind of like how do we really really apply that um and if there's one more thing i'm interested in you know i always have an area of kind of exploration and experimentation right now for me that's about uh, it's around digital trust building is this idea that, you know, trust for centuries, for millennia, trust was about uh, geographic proximity, right? You trusted the people you lived next to, stood next to, or were in the same room with. These technologies, like the one we're using right now, are getting so good that we're starting to feel like we can really build deeper trust-based relationships without meeting quote in person or physically. Right. And I've had this sensation a couple of times over the last year of meeting someone and them saying, Oh, it's so great to meet you in person for the first time. And and my brain kind of does a short circuit. And so it's like, no, but we've met. And then I realized, no, we haven't. Like we've only met on zoom, but I have a connection to that person that feels like we've met, right. Or that feels like we have that level of trust. And I'm interested in that because if you can unlock that, a lot of the things in business around partnerships, frankly, a lot of the venture capital industry profoundly changes if you can build that level of trust, you know, without physically being next to each other. So I think that's a, an important thread. I'm, I don't know what that means for the next 10 years. I want to learn more about that and figure out where it goes. Okay. Last question. And then I'm going, we're going to wrap up. Uh, you know, I recently watched everything everywhere all at once. I don't know if you saw it. It was a really interesting movie. Um, so in your multi multiverse, what would Alan Taylor Taylor be doing in a different life? Had he never started Endeavor, would you have started a company? What would that, what would Alan Taylor's multiverse, another version of Alan Taylor look like? Oh, funny. There's a very clear road not taken for me, uh, which is, you know, after I graduated, I went to Princeton undergrad. I talked about that fellowship program we started. 
But I ended up on a Fulbright scholarship, spending a year in Berlin, Germany, doing kind of deep academic research uh, on photography of the 1920s. Uh, and there was a there was a world where I was going to, you know, apply to art history PhD programs and become a professor of art history, like working within the medium of photography, really at the the intersection point of kind of what I felt like was a moment in which the world experienced tremendous social upheaval and social revolution, right? World War One and, and sort of the decade in between. Uh, it, you know, I was a German literature major, so I studied the Weimar Republic of Germany a lot. Uh, but there was a there was a world where I ended up writing books and being a professor of of art history, studying this kind of intersection of social revolution and artistic revolution through the medium of photography. I didn't do that, but that's a different <laughs> life that uh, I, I could have had. I never knew that. And I, I can actually picture you doing that, but I'm very glad you're here. Cool. Uh, Thank you for joining us. We have uh, this sort of 30 minute dose of inspiration from influencers, investors, endeavor entrepreneurs, endeavor leaders. We're so glad to have had you on the show. Um, successful high impact entrepreneurs and thinkers generate a multiplier effect, multiplier effect. So young people everywhere, regardless of birthplace or background, hear these stories and begin to believe that they too can dream big, scale up and pay their success forward. And so Endeavor's ultimate aim, I think, is a more equitable and prosperous future for everyone. And that starts with people like you, Alan. So thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.